Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Sean. I'm a producer here at ACME, and I'd like to welcome you all to Studio One this evening for our final session of Talking TV for the year. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Talking TV is our ongoing series of events exploring the small screen. Uh, as part of the program, we've previously looked at everything from Twin Peaks and Game of Thrones to Veronica Mars and most recently Broad City. Uh, tonight, of course, we're taking a trip to the Northern Hemisphere and exploring a suite of Nordic television as well as the English language remakes that these Scandinavian hits have inspired. Uh, before we get started, just a few quick pieces of housekeeping. We are recording tonight for podcasts, so if you can turn off your mobile phones, that would be great. Uh, if anybody needs to leave for a bathroom break or anything, those doors are now closed, so if you could just enter and exit via this door here. Uh, but... Getting on with this evening, uh, we brought together a special group of scandophiles for tonight's talk, and leading them will be this evening's host, the exceptional Dr. Joymi Baker. Uh, Joymi teaches screen studies at the University of Melbourne, uh, where her PhD won the Chancellor's Prize for Excellence in the Humanities. She's the co-author of the Encyclopedia for Epic of Epic Films, which just came out this year, and is currently finishing a book on Star Trek. Her articles on topics such as TV stardom, TV fandom, and science fiction television have appeared in journals such as Popular Culture Review and Senses of Cinema, and in books including Millennial Mythmaking, Essays on the Power of Science and Fantasy Literature, Films, and Games. Uh, she's previously worked for many years in television news and current affairs and is no stranger to the studio here at ACME, having spoken at past Talking TV events on everything from Sex on Screen to the HBO show Enlightened, uh, which actually saw her don a blonde Laura Dernwig and get into character as none other than Amy Jellico herself. Uh, she's appearing wig-free tonight, though, and will be joined on the couch by Sue Turnbull, Byron Bache, and Alison Horbury, all of whom you'll be introduced to very shortly. Uh, but for now, please join me in welcoming Joymi and the panel. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to All Things Nordic, also known as Don't Forget Your Chunky Sweater, <laughs> and Can You Pick the Season of the Killing by the Sweater? And look, Camilla's getting hers, isn't she, doll? Uh, she got a cardi, though, just to be a bit more British about it. Um, also known as, have you seen the original? It's so much better than the remake. Now, I say this not because I necessarily want to trash the remakes, but just because, you know, when you get chatting and conversation about what you're working on, what you're doing, things, sooner or later that kind of sentiment comes up about, you know, what's authentic and which one's better. And not necessarily as straightforward as you might sort of think. So, for example, I've got here um, some images from the various uh, Wallander. Which one do you favour? Kirsten Henriksen, who has played the role in the Swedish TV version for nearly a decade and is just um, stopping that this, this year, has announced he's not going to do it anymore. Or Rolf Lasgaard, who plays him in the film adaptations of the books. Or Kenneth Branagh, who plays Wallander in the BBC English language versions. Curiously still set in Sweden. Now, that's always <laughs> strike me as rather odd. So I guess the thing is, are the first two more authentic because they're Swedish? 
or the second two more authentic because they're based on the original books. And this is the kind of discussions that we got into. Henriksen, uh, who's played the role for the longest, has a different take on it. He says that once he heard that the Branner series had been greenlit, that he says, I thought, well, I'd better pack up and go home now that the BBC is coming. I was brought up with BBC productions and the BBC is really the cradle of the crimes for the Swedes. We all had an inferiority complex to the British. Mm. I think that's an interesting sort of mm. comment in the context mm. of, of tonight. That idea of a cultural cringe is always relative to where mm. you're situated. So our panel tonight is going to discuss all things Nordic, why we love them, why the world feels compelled to remake them and what the implications of that are. Mm. Um, we will hold off questions until the very end. So if you've got something burning to ask of our panel, just hold on to it. In the end, we will have an open mic session where we can discuss some of the things that have come up tonight. So starting off tonight is Sue Turnbull, Professor of Communication and Media Studies at the University of Wollongong. Her recent publications include The Media and Communications in Australia, which was published this year, with distinguished Professor Stuart Cunningham, and also the television crime drama, also out this year. Sue's a frequent media commentator on television and radio in Australia who writes on crime fiction for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Um, and incidentally, she was also part of the team designing Digital Worlds exhibition here for ACME just a few years ago. But tonight here, she's here to talk about The Bridge and its various remakes and this work is um, going to be published in an upcoming book called Laws Popular Cultures. So would you please make Sue welcome? Right. Well, um, I hope you acknowledge the fact that I'm wearing leather trousers. <laughs> um, I now have five pairs of leather trousers. I'm so embarrassed to admit this, but Saga Noren is to blame for all of them. <laughs> um, watching that first season of The Bridge, you know, and that moment when she appears in those trousers and then she has the T-shirt and that whole kind of thing, and I'm looking at the trousers and I'm going, I love those trousers. <laughs> And, you know, that, that was the kind of moment of connection was who was this woman, who was this character, how was this unfolding? But there was another point of recognition, which was that I had actually been invited to go to a, a conference at the University of Malmo. And I'd been staying in Copenhagen because they, you know, it's a train journey away, about a 45-minute train journey. And I had gone backwards and forwards across that bridge. So when I first saw the bridge, it was like... <gasps> You know, this moment of recognition because of that cultural proximity. And I'll use that term a little bit um, because there are all sorts of ways in which watching those Scandinavian series, we have various kinds of proximities to them. And you mentioned that, that, that earlier quote about you know, what the Scandinavians had learned from the Brits mm -hmm. And it's like, what did the Scandinavians learn from the Americans? And what did the mm -hmm. Scandinavians... You know, they've been watching all this television too. And then somewhere around 2000, you know, we've got Denmark with a population of, as according to today's figures, 5.6-something million, right? We've got Sweden with a population of 9. almost 6 million, you know, reasonably small countries. And they public service broadcasters decide that the only way their television huh, is going to continue to be um, makeable and, and vibrant is to do co-productions and to sell it overseas. Mm -hmm. So immediately they go to um, raising the production values. And so all the television that we've seen, the crime television that we've seen from 2000 onwards, Unit 1, The Eagle, The Killing, 
Borgen sort of slightly to one side and the bridge have been made with that co-production export market in mind, which is, I think, really interesting. You know, here's a small area of the world who are saying we're going to make the television that other people want to watch. Um, having said that, I think I'll just pause and could we have just the first title sequence from the bridge? And while you're watching this, I'm going to ask you a question. Think when you're watching it, am I in Denmark or am I in Sweden? Right? As the shots come up, try and work out where you think you are. Okay. Okay, apart from the little mermaid, <laughs> <laughs> um, what's interesting about watching that from kind of the Australian perspective, from the perspective of someone who is not familiar with those Scandinavian countries very well, even though the title is in two languages, the Danish and the Swedish, I'm not sure that watching that, I got the, the cultural tension between those two countries. I think that's one of the tensions of the series which didn't resonate as strongly for, from viewers who were not aware of, of the kinds of issues that it raised. I mean, there was a moment when um, Martin Roder goes over to uh, Malmo and he's speaking too fast in Danish and the, the people standing around in the room go and he, he realizes they didn't get what he was saying mm -hmm. and, he, and he tries again because the language is approximate but a little <coughs> bit different. And it's... A, Watching it from from the point of view of a non-Danish, non-Swedish speaker married to a Norwegian, I might add. Um, <laughs> you know, I was kind of going, I'm, okay, I get that there's these two pieces, but I didn't always know when I was watching the series which side of the bridge I was on. I wasn't always sure that I was in Malmo or always sure I was in Copenhagen. But in the end, that didn't matter because there were other cultural proximities that worked. And, and one of them was, of course, genre. I knew I was in a television crime drama series from you know, the very opening, the body on the bridge, the two halves, the dispute over which location, separating the bodies out. You know, pretty soon we know we've got a Swedish politician top half, prostitute bottom half. We're into a serial killer narrative. And that proximity of genre worked pretty well immediately. What also worked were the thematics around the, the truth that the killer wants to tell about the failure of the social welfare system to look after these people. That worked too. So you, you got the point of it. And then, of course, you also got the point of the thematics of the, the married um, detective who's cheating on his wife and who is you know, unreliable, but etc. And you also got the point of the trope of the Aspergy female detective, because Aspergy female detectives and Aspergy detectives have kind of taken over <laughs> as the, the dominant mode of detective. You know, it used to be you know, a la Rebus, the middle-aged man with a divorce and a drinking problem and a smoking problem and, you know, an anger management problem. <laughs> We've now gone into the social isolate who is brilliant but dysfunctional in some way. And, and that trope immediately spoke. You know, we're, we're thinking girl with a dragon tattoo. We're thinking, you know, also monk. We're thinking, indeed, Sherlock Holmes, as, as realised by Benedict Cumberbatch and then again by... Johnny What's-His-Name in elementary. You know, we're now in that era of, of the dysfunctional detective. So all those things worked. All right. Then, of course, there's the decision to remake this. And you've got to ask yourself, why remake it? 
And one of the possible answers is that, of course, the original version, the Danish-Swedish version, is, is watched in somewhere between 134 and 174 different countries, many of which are watching it with subtitles. But the further, and my colleagues in Denmark have actually identified this, the further that a Danish-Swedish TV series moves from its point of origin, from Europe and outwards and outwards and outwards, the more niche the audience becomes. So that by the time it gets to Australia, it's on SBS 2, <laughs> right? Now, you are pretty niche, okay? You're prepared to watch things with subtitles, and you might well be part of that transcultural audience who travels and is prepared to go there in the imagination. So let's have a look at the British-French um, version. And again, comparing those title sequences, have a look at this and what this one does and what this one tells you. Completely different, right? We're in a tunnel. We're in claustrophobic territory. There's even a little Doctor Who-ish element in there. And we're within the body floating past. And we've got, you know, the Charlotte Gainsbourg singing this, this very um, extraordinarily kind of um, haunting but weird song. And the emphasis is shifting, and it's, it's almost completely black and white. But it's no longer about place. It's, it's about a mindset, if you like. It's about that moment of isolation. Now, I don't know how many of you watched the tunnel. Um, it was an interesting exercise for me to watch it, you know, being British and having, having lived in France for a while, because I got it. I always knew whether I was in Britain or I was in France, and the languages spoke, and I got all that. But it didn't grab me. Right? I found it very difficult. And, and again, what were they thinking? When Sky Atlantic and Canal TV decided to remake the bridge for a French-English um, audience, which audience did they think they were going to get? You know, what, what was the BBC4, BBC HD audience? Who, how would they be different from the audience that had watched the original bridge? You know, what was the investment? Who did they think they were going to capture and those are the sorts of questions that I'm very interested in. And indeed, the bigger project that I'm engaged in is following the money. You know, where was the money? Who wanted to make it? What was the investment? What was the premise? Because with many remakes, um, the idea is that you've got a successful product which has reached a minority audience, and you think you can make it bigger. You think you can find a larger audience for it. Now, when we come to the American one, and this is the one that I, I want to um, put up next, how many of you have actually seen the American one? A couple. Okay, completely different again. The, what happens is the, the, the format of the story is floating around at these kinds of TV trade shows, and a package comes across. You know, FX buys a package of these shows with the possibility of a remake. And there's this writer, Elwood, um, let me just remember his name, um, Elwood Reed and his partner Meredith Steinem decide that they quite like this, the bridge. And the pressure is on them to set it on the American-Canadian border. They've watched the killing and the re-adaption of that and they go, we don't want to go that way. We want to do something completely different. And so they take the original premise, they sold the story, and this, this is where this no notion of formats, we're very used to formats in reality TV. You know, you buy the quiz show, you buy the reality TV show, you have that package, you have that Bible. 
So they've got this, this narrative structure, and then they take it, and then they start to do it. But Elwood Reed and Meredith Steinem in America are completely over the serial killer narrative. They just go, we don't, you know, we've been doing this in America for like, you know, since Silence of the Lambs and, you know, Red Dragon before that. The serial killer, as I know from my reviewing of crime fiction, was kind of started in the 80s, really was the 90s anxiety. Everybody wrote a serial killer thriller. And then it went into pedophilia and terrorism. And, and now we're into um, a, a, the Aspergy person who's just struggling to survive. You know, we, we go through these phases. But Steinem and Elwood went, we don't want to make another serial killer narrative. So let's have a look at the, um, if we can, at the American title sequence, which sets up a completely different look and a completely different feel. Like the original, it's completely about place. It's completely about the tension between two countries, only this time it's manifestly obvious. It's about the drug trade between America and El Paso, and it's about these, what's happening in El Paso, which is these young women who are, be, who are disappearing in reality. Um, and they, they are, the, the, the TV makers enter into this political reality of what's going on in that area. They do their research, and the series is made with such passion that there's some very bumpy episodes going in from the, from the first through to the sixth episode where they're paying lip service to the two central characters, um, you know, the equivalent of Martin Road and, and, and Saga Nora. They're paying lip service to those and to their stories, but they're much more interested in all the peripheral stories and all the peripheral characters. Now, you might not like the American remake, but to me it was a fascinating exploration of what a remake can do. And it reminded me of what happened with The Office. When they remade The Office in the US, they, and, and when they remade Catherine Kim, and I've actually written about Catherine Kim in the remakes, when they remade them originally, they stuck with the scripts, right? With The Office, they started to Americanize and Americanize, and they lost the scripts, and it became a completely American workplace, American, you know, the character took off, the actors took off, and they went their own way. The American bridge does the same thing. It goes off in all sorts of crazy directions. <laughs> and there are wonderful characters, including the, the character of the, the welfare waker, uh, worker, you know, the one who's got the, the sister who was poisoned in, in the original, is this lone wolf character played by the American, uh, by the Australian actor Thomas, I've forgotten his name, I knew I would do that. Um, he's played by an Australian who was also in Top of the Lake, playing the boyfriend in Top of the Lake. And he plays this character with a buttoned up shirt like this, with marbles in his mouth, and he's this completely bizarre character. You do not know what he is or where he is, and you've got no relationship to it. Because the other thing the Americans don't have is they don't have a social welfare si system. And, they, and th so they can't criticize that. They've got something else. <laughs> They've got to go for it. So they reinvent the bridge amazingly, I think. And they went to season two, but it didn't pick up an audience. And in some ways, I'm kind of sad because I actually see the American version of the bridge as a much more vital realization as soon as it kind of lost Diane Kruger. I didn't mind the Mexican guy, but I didn't like Diane Kruger. <laughs> you know? And that brings me to my final point, which is that, that when, we, when we're talking about remakes, so often we're kind of um, rusted onto the performances of the original. Mm. 
you know, that, that there is a way in which the actors and their performance, and, and I, I, I love writing about this notion of performance, and, and I'm sure that, you know, as a, as a theater critic, you would, you would say this, that there are certain people who embody a part and make it live in ways that when you do a remake, it just can't be redone. So having seen, you know, two kind of attempts to do the, 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 um, the saga Noran, then they just haven't failed and they don't wear leather trousers. You know, <laughs> it, it just doesn't work. So it's, it's intriguing, but the, the second season of The Bridge, it's, it's now being cancelled. So they haven't picked up, but we are going to get the third season of the original, and I've not heard a whisper about the second season of The Tunnel. I think that one's just gone... <laughs> well, Stephen Delane's got Game of Thrones until his character's killed off, but there you go. Which could be any day. <laughs> any day. So that's me. That's, that's right. what I wanted to say. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> So I'm interested in this idea um, that a particular actor does become to embody a, a character and it's very hard for an audience then to carry over to someone else. I wonder, you know, does it matter then, you know, that these are remakes, but what if you come to the remake first and are working back? Because then doesn't that become the original and changes? Yes, can changes your engagement. It, it could. It could. I wonder if there's anybody here that's had that experience. <laughs> I saw the American Bridge first. Yeah. And yes. I hated it. Yes. Part, mostly because Diane Kruger can't act. Like she's not even a terrible actress. She just can't act. But I, and then I saw the original and loved it. So yes. I, so it didn't make a yeah, difference. It didn't, yeah, it didn't yeah, change yeah. it for me. Yeah. So. No. I, I mean, I, I was watching Kruger trying terribly hard <laughs> and, and feeling feeling for her. In that role. Meanwhile, I was completely besotted with all those minor characters and, and everything that was happening in Mexico and Juarez. And, and the atmosphere of it got me. Mm. You know? And that's what I love about the American bridge is that it really has that sense of atmosphere with the British one didn't have. The, the British one just didn't introduce me to that world. I forgot to mention um, Martin Rhodes' ki kitchen chairs. <laughs> you know, there was a way in which the, the original, and, and we might want to come back to that with, with the, the Scandinavian thing, mm -hmm. which is that, that there is an idea about fashion and about style which matches a certain moment that we're in where, you know, I, I was looking at his kitchen chairs and going, you know, I'm Ooh, loving yes. this style, those <laughs> kitchen chairs. You know, this is Danish, Scandinavian Ooh. design thing. We, we might be having a revival of the 50s, mm. you know, in that no, we're all doing so Parker much, furniture, you know. Not so much the English-French. <laughs> the English-French didn't grab it at all, though Stephen Delane's character did have an amazing house. They did try to replicate something about that notion of, an in, of a high production value interior design that would draw people in. Although I like how they had to justify that by saying that his wife is in design and decor because yes. a, normally a British person is not supposed to have a house <laughs> no. that looks like that being no. the inference. No. <laughs> Thanks, Sue. So next up we have Dr. Alison Horgrove, who was awarded her PhD in media studies last year, actually in the same department that I'm from, which is the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne. Her thesis called Post-Feminist Impasses in Popular Heroine Television, The Persephone Complex, is about to be published by Palgrave. She's published previously on feminist media studies and also digital communities in social networks. Alison won the University Medal from La Trobe University for analysis of a teacher-student sex crime widely debated in Australian media. 
She's been editorial assistant on a journal, Screening the Past, which I highly recommend you check out at screeningthepast.com. It's an excellent um, online journal, just free to have a look at. And recently organised the seventh Women in Silent Screen Conference. Alison currently lectures in Gender Studies as well as Media and Communications at the University of Melbourne, but tonight she'll be talking to us about Verbrüsen and the Killing. Please make her welcome. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, uh, I don't know if Sue would, would like this well known, but Sue was actually my um, lecturer as an undergraduate out at La Trobe, so I feel quite honoured to be on the couch with her tonight <laughs> talking about TV. Um, I guess, you know, what I want to talk about tonight in terms of uh, the killing, I spent all morning trying to figure out how to pronounce uh, the Danish version of this, so I'm just going to call it the Danish killing. I'm sorry, I, I will make a horrible fool of myself. Um, what I want to think about is, I guess, uh, the question uh, that I want to put to the, to the, the other panellists and to you, of course, is, um, is it possible to make, to remake uh, television when there's no authentic creative impulse behind it. You know, if you've just bought a format or if you've just bought um, into an idea and you're trying to recreate uh, a moment or trying to recreate some, some drama. Um, who has seen the American version of The Killing? A few people, yeah? Um, I have to confess that I'm not a huge fan and I don't know that that necessarily makes the American version bad killing... Uh, Bad feeling. Bad television. Um, but certainly, you know, I watched it almost minutes after watching the Danish version, so mm. that might have some mm. impact on my ability to kind of grasp the, the, mm. the feel and the, the look and the, the direction that they wanted to take it in. Um, but, you know, I think, um, I think the, the bridge and, you know, possibly some of the other Nordic um, noir dramas... Uh, have, have a structure, you know, a plot that really allows them to be remade in unique ways, like Sue was just saying, with the, you know, just taking that basic structure and then exploring a whole new cultural context. Mm. Um, and certainly, you know, my own work has been looking at the way that myth gets, um, you know, repeatedly remade in new eras to, to serve the purposes of a new cultural and political kind of era. Um, but... For those who aren't in the know, the American version of The Killing uh, has been a bit of a disaster. It was, um, you know, it has quite a, a, a very small but passionate following, um, but it was cancelled in 2012 after its second season. Then it was, uh, you know, the, the creator, um, uh, Vina Sud, made a passionate kind of plea and it got remade. Um, then it got cancelled again, and then eventually uh, Netflix picked it up for a final season. But it's had a rocky road, and it's it's never really been embraced passionately the way in which um, the, the Danish killing has been. Um, so one of the things that I want to look at is this idea of genre. You know, where did they go wrong in recreating uh, what is a very familiar genre to us? You know, we're all, as Sue sort of said, we can all kind of hook into the genre and enjoy the detective noir drama. Um, and I want to kind of put forward a bit of a proposition that, uh, which, you know, I'd love to hear everyone's opinion on, that it is actually the Danish version of The Killing deviates in very subtle ways from that traditional detective noir format. Uh, and it's actually those deviations that make it really successful. Um, so let's kind of backtrack. The first 
uh, element that I really noticed was that in the American remake of The Killing, not only did they take, you know, the plot uh, wholesale, the set design kind of wholesale, you know, the, the, uh, the family of the murdered girl, their kitchen is set up very much like <laughs> the, Amer uh, the Danish version, and you can see a real attempt to recreate certain elements the, uh, the lead female detective has a nice woolly sweater, uh, you know, much like uh, Lunds. Um, and they even have the same music. And when I read this, I thought, oh, they've, they've got the same incidental music. And I kept an ear out open for it. I actually couldn't sort of detect these, these musical impulses, um, which was strange because I think the music of The Killing is quite distinct um, and creates a really rich atmosphere and a, a real kind of pace to the narrative which goes so slowly but the, the, the soundscape is really quite unique. Um, if you haven't watched it, it was playing when we, everyone was sort of filing in this afternoon. Mm. Um, and in fact, Sarah Lund, our, um, our heroine, has her own musical leitmotif whenever she has a kind of intuitive moment in her detecting, we hear this little <laughs> refrain that, oh, her, her kind of intuition is taking over and we're about to discover something interesting. <laughs> um, and so I was thinking, where is this music that apparently they've used as well? And they have used it. It's in a much... Uh, it's been sort of adapted, I think. It sort of doesn't sound quite the same and it certainly doesn't have the same intensity. It's not used in the same way. When I was looking out for it, what I really started to notice was that the subtlety of the music in the Danish version was replaced in the American version with a lot of exposition, <laughs> a lot of heavy mm. dialogue telling mm. you what was happening, who everyone mm. was, how everyone felt, mm. you know, oh, and I'm feeling like this, and we had, you know, this exploration of all the characters through dialogue rather than through mood and lighting and uh, music you know, this kind of musical impulse. Um, incidentally, I've been sort of... I think one of the reasons I came to this is because I was thinking about the role music plays in drama. Um, in uh, Greek tragedy, Greek tragedy began with the music, the musical impulse, and then they added lyrics, and then they added dialogue. And so the drama, as it became the classic kind of Greek tragedy on stage... Um, originates with the musical impulse as this kind of creative impulse. Now, of course, as viewers, well, as creators, the music comes, I guess, later. But as viewers, we experience it as kind of part of the drama. And I think one of the successes of the, the Danish killing is the way that they don't overplay the characters. They don't overplay the dialogue. We get this subtle setting of the scene, the beautifully lit kitchen where the, you know, the family is kind of gathering. Um, we don't know very much about Sarah Lund. Uh, we don't have a lot of conversations where she tells people how she's feeling. Um, now, the cynic in me wants to sort of attribute this to uh, American, the industrial nature of American TV production, and that perhaps one of the failures of the American killing is that it's made under these kind of uh, conditions where so much TV gets made in America everyone on set is kind of a well-oiled machine. There isn't much opportunity for genuine creativity to come through, but instead it's like going through the motions, producing TV that 
Um, to quote Ted Madger, you know, it doesn't have to be good TV, you just have to not turn off. Um, <laughs> American television works on this kind of principle, we've got a massive audience, people are there, they're kind of locked into the armchair, all we have to do is make something that's not turn-offable. Um, it works on a kind of totally different principle, and as, as Sue mentions, you know, the, the <coughs> Scandinavians went, we don't have much money and we have a small audience. When we decide to make a program, we have to be really clever about it. You know, we can't, our risk ratio is much lower than in the US where they can risk a little bit more because a 10% of the American viewing audience is still probably, you know, three or four times more than the entire Danish population. So, um, so you know, the cynic in me thinks that that's one of the reasons why it hasn't quite taken off. But, um, you know, on the other hand, America is the home of long-form quality television program that we've all come to love. And actually, you know, as Sue also sort of points out, that's where the, the Scandi Noir TV dramas, uh, they're borrowing from those traditions and coming out of those traditions of really good quality TV that is subtle and that is nuanced and uh, <coughs> not the kind of everyday fare of, of, of TV drama. Um, and then I sort of, so I've got another kind of question to, to put to you all. I was thinking, well, really then, aren't we thinking about, um, instead of thinking about the American remake, let's think about the Danish as a remake of a very familiar genre. Um, and I've, I've forgotten to sort of skip through the slides. I don't know who's got the... Um, oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this is... Uh, on delay. So there, there's our American um, killing. Mm -hmm. um, but what I noticed about the American version is that they advertised it very much in the frame of Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Who Killed Rosie Larson is the sort of the, the American killing poster, um, which really recalls the, the advertising of Twin Peaks when they had, you know, Who Killed Laura Palmer as a sort of anchor point for people to kind of tune mm -hmm. in. And actually, this borrows from a fairly, you know, well-oiled tradition of the dead blonde uh, who's been murdered at the centre of the, the crime. Um, viewers of Veronica Mars will be familiar with that. And, uh, you know, the, heroine, the dead blonde in Veronica Mars references the dead blonde in Psycho um, in the name, Laura. His name, Lily Kane, is a sort of riff off Lila Crane from Psycho. Um, so it's actually, I started thinking, okay, well, maybe the, the Danish killing is a remake of this uh, traditional format. And like Twin Peaks, you know, I think there are a lot of similarities between the Danish killing and Twin Peaks. Um, there is a fetish for sweaters. Um, <laughs> this is a, the cut recently produced a slideshow of all 121 sweaters from Twin Peaks in order. Um, I tried to find it, but it's, someone's taken it down. But you know, we've got this kind of fetish of the sweater, and I thought, going back to my original claim that it's what the Danish killing does that's different from those traditional genres that we're so used to and the motif of the dead blonde at the centre, um, I started thinking, well, what is really noir about the killing and Scandi noir? Um, the sweater has become quite a kind of anchor point for talking about this program. You know, in the UK, they had a radio competition. You could knit the sweater. 
Um, the, the sweater, of course, the famous sweater we're talking about. It's, you can knit the sweater. Um, ironically, the prize, if you, if you win that competition, is a sweater from the show. Um, and the sweater has... Uh, David... Oh, sorry, not David. Uh, I, I, uh, Michael Bay, Bywater... Um, has, has donned the whole show, the girl with the woolly sweater, sort of riffing off the noir quality. Now, I'd like to show you a clip. This sweater was actually made by um, a <laughs> Swedish company, if we could load the clip up. Uh, and it really taps into that Nordic noir theme. Now, this is actually um, made by the, the company that makes the sweater have made a video instructing you how to stretch and pull the sweater if you should be lucky enough to buy one of the originals. Um, so we'll have a look at this, this <laughs> instructional manual on the sweater. <laughs> well, I certainly had no idea that the sweater was so much work. Uh, I, I had thought you could just pop it on. Um, but I think this really touches on the, the idea of noir that we have, you know, a sort of bleak landscape, uh, a very abstract and um, uh, almost uh, quality of, of um, kind of existential um, questioning going on. Um, this, this ad actually reminds me, to sort of bring the conversation quite, quite low, of um, <laughs> the episode in The Simpsons where Homer becomes a snowplow um, king and makes an ad. It starts off and makes a really cheap ad and then he becomes you know, the biggest snowplow uh, guy in town and he, makes, he pays for a really expensive ad like this. And at the end, you know, there's like a chessboard and a snow globe smashing on it and some Wagner in the background. And at the end, the kids turn to him and say, what does it mean? And he says, I don't know. You know uh, no one really knows what this kind of existential questioning is all about, this sort of symbolic, metaphoric exploration. Um, you know, noir has been kind of described as... It's hotly debated what the definition of noir is, but certainly... The qualities of noir are that, you know, it's a kind of bleak landscape, you know, there's, there's an element of despair that, you know, disenchantment, um, in a kind of industrial landscape uh, that speaks to the disenchantment of modernity. Um, and for me, The Killing, the Danish version of The Killing, doesn't quite capture that, because actually I think it's a very warm show. Um, it's not cold. Uh, at the centre of the narrative is this, uh, you know, touching family, nuclear family going through an incredibly, um, you know, unimaginable moment of grief. Um, and before we move on, I just have to, an anecdote that I have to say is that apparently this sweater was originally meant to be a cape a la... Uh, a Million Ways to Die in the West. Um, mm. Now, I don't know if it's true, mm. but according to the creator, he wanted Sarah Lund to wear not just a normal poncho, but actually this poncho. Um, and it was decided <laughs> that she couldn't pull her gun out of the holster in time. Um, and I don't kind of believe that anecdote because <laughs> she didn't carry a gun. You know, there was a big thing about she never really had a gun with her. But I thought that was an interesting anecdote. Uh, but to get back to the idea of the sweater, what I, what I get from this series are these beautiful warm shots of the nuclear family. Um, and I don't think it's incidental that that sort of uh, warm kitchen womb at the centre of the narrative is kind of 
in an odd industrial landscape. Um, and it seems that, like the sweater, I found a beautiful uh, essay about the sweater that was basically arguing the sweater is our key to unlock the whole narrative of the killing. <laughs> um, it was in a journal called the, the Journal of Fabric, Cloth and Culture, um, which... <laughs> If you have a spare few minutes, you know, or a spare afternoon, is a, is a, is a wonderful kind of detour. But uh, Joe Turney argues that the sweater is uh, this metaphor for the whole show that institutionally, uh, socially, culturally, politically, everything is connected in a kind of uh, tensile woven fabric and that if one thread is pulled, you know, the whole sweater could come undone. Um, that is, if, if Nana uh, is murdered, the whole kind of fabric of society will unravel, um, which I thought was a really interesting kind of metaphor. But I think, I don't think uh, the killing is fundamentally pessimistic. In fact, there seems to be a nostalgia for this nuclear family. And I think the sweater, you know, Joe Turney also sort of says the sweater, it's a very distinct Scandinavian pattern that has very nostalgic overtones to a kind of long, not very far distant um, past of nationalism that is kind of under threat by um, the, the troubling issues of modernity like uh, migration. And I think, you know, that probably the key sort of element of the killing that was taken up in the American version was the tensions about um, race that, that play out. Um, and I think this kind of, you know, brings us back to this point that, in a way, I don't think the, quilly, the killing is really kind of noir, or at least, you know, if we think about the other genres that it, it borrows from, like the chick dick kind of female detective narrative, it's really <coughs> quite distinct from those elements. Um, it's not fundamentally pessimistic, or at least I don't feel it to be. Um, like, you know, Sarah Lund uh, to... Um, here we've got the kind of grieving family, the, the, the centre of the whole program. But our, our heroine, Sarah Lund, if you compare her to, exam for example, with uh, The Fall, which is also kind of often put in the same um, shelf as The Killing with Gillian Anderson, we, The Fall is a more classic chick-dick kind of narrative in that the crime she uncovers is all about... Um, she uncovers the sort of institutionalised uh, problem that the show articulates about the role of women uh, socially. So often the chick dick uncovers, you know, institutionalised misogyny and the crime is a symbol for this kind of greater problem, um, which in the, the fall, uh, you know, Gillian Anderson is kind of quite vocal about her disdain for the killer and his misogyny and the crime as this sort of representative. Whereas what you really notice about the Danish killing is that sort of the crime is almost incidental. Like, the real crime is the loss of life, which the grieving family shows us. But we don't get the recreated scene of, once we find out who the killer is, it's not fetishised. We don't get a reenactment. We don't sort of see what happened in the last moments of Nana's life. We learn what happened, you know, as a, as a keen detective fan, I had thousands of questions that I thought were left unanswered, and I was really quite unsatisfied. But... <laughs> Uh, nevertheless, I felt, oh, because it's not about, you know, the sort of horror that she went through. It's the, it's the ramifications of the crime and how that, you know, un unravels the sweater of, of the fabric of um, life. Um, and actually, I think, 
some of the more subtle moments that the Danish version had, it kind of leads more and more to, to think about the Danish version as actually being more about melodrama and about a kind of, uh, you know, almost soap opera-y kind of exploration of, of life rather than a particular kind of crime that tells us uh, of some sort of greater problem. But that's, that's really what I would like to kind of pitch to you guys. And I don't know if you have similar thoughts about your own programs and remakes or, um, you know, if anyone agrees or disagrees. Um, but that's where I sort of would like to, to leave it, I think. So, yeah. Thanks, Alison. <laughs> I found one thing I just wanted to pick up quickly was this um, idea that they were using the same music and yet it was functioning in quite a different way. Yeah. And I wonder if that's partly because if you've got so much exposition, so much like this is happening, this is how mm. I feel, this is what's going on now, in case you missed it, this is, you know, mm. yeah. that there's no room then for the music to play that role. And which, taking it back, I wonder if that means that the original, it's not just about the music, it's all about, also about the silence. Yeah, absolutely, Perhaps. I think. I mean, there are so many moments in the Danish version where we just get a long, slow pan out mm. and there's so mm. much silence mm. and so much about what we learn that is happening in the narrative yeah. is really implied. Mm. Um, and mm. I wondered, you know, actually something you said before, I was thinking, in that way, it gives viewers an opportunity to fill in those gaps themselves mm. and mm. to interpret what's mm. happening and the relationships that are forming themselves. Mm. Whereas in the American one, there's sort of less opportunity. It's a bit more mm. determined mm. how everyone feels. Um, and in that way, perhaps that's what's more attractive, is mm. that those silences make it more personal, your kind of engagement with that narrative. Yeah. In... The American remake of The Bridge, there's a moment where Sonia Kruger's character explains, I have a problem with people. <laughs> you know, and Saganor never does that. Mm. You know, there is a way in which there is a, a need to literalise what they think the audience mm. won't get. Mm. On the other hand, there are things in the American version that we don't get. Mm. You know, that there, are, there are things which they explicate, which you know, for, for someone watching from, who doesn't know that, um, part of the world uh, are unspoken kind of you know you, you just get it mm. all those things are going on but um, I wanted to just pick up on, <coughs> on what you said about uh, what we're watching is a major shift in American television and, and the shift that's occurring is away from the network shows mm. which have always been in a sense dumbed down mm. right to appeal to a large audience and what we're getting is the arrival of those niche cable outlets and production outlets so that, you know, the audience for The Wire mm. on HBO was somewhere in the region of about six million, oh, you know? The original audience for The Wire was tiny. Mm. The audience that The Wire found was on niche channels elsewhere and on DVD sales. Mm. But what pushed The Wire up was the critical mass of the people who adjudicate on what is good television. Yeah, right? yeah. So that suddenly, and, and this was said, um, people were watching American television who wouldn't admit to it what it was watching to American television <laughs> oh, no, so they weren't yeah. watching because it was The Wire. They weren't yeah. watching American TV, they were watching The Wire, so that's the distinction. Yeah. Well, they were you watching know, like, TV, they were watching HBO. Right? That's yes, right. Oh, and then suddenly <laughs> the whole literary analogy crept mm -hmm. in. You know, yeah. that, 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 that Simon always claimed that he was darker than Dickens. Mm, but the yeah. analogy with Dickens kind of clapped up, and then suddenly it became respectable to watch 
the difficult television, mm. right? And I think the Scandinavian crime series has kind of crept in that way. Yeah. Television for people who don't watch television. Yeah. <laughs> no, they watch quality drama. That's I, right. I guess <laughs> I, I also wondered about the American sort of heavy exposition, whether that comes out of the American culture for confession. Mm. And whether that's, you know, the cynic sort of wants to say that there's something uh, detracting about that heavy mm. being told what everyone's thinking, but perhaps that is more of a cultural mm. moment of that's how you express yourself yes. in America. They so talk that's, too much. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're afraid of silence. Like you, I'm sure we've all been in a situation where an American's told a joke at a dinner party or in conversation, and then they say, I'm just joking afterwards because the silence after it would be too, too deadly. Too <laughs> All right, well, we're going to move uh, away from noir, um, but we're going to stay in Denmark and with DR, as that happens, uh, with Borgen. Can I get the little mm. clicker? Thank you, because that's me up, and Sean's already introduced me, so I won't do it again. Um, so, uh, here we go, Borgen. <laughs> tells the story of political struggles of Virgit Nyborg here as she becomes the first female Prime Minister of Denmark a good year before Denmark actually voted in its first female Prime Minister. Um, and I have to say that um, picking up on um, what you were saying, Alison, about how do we consider a remake given that they're borrowing so heavily mm. um, from... Uh, American and English formats. Um, in part, this renaissance that DR is going through was because they funded their execs, top execs and writers to go over to the States mm. um, and look at how um, TV was being made over there and what sort of improvements they could make to their own industry. And so they mm. came back and made some quite structural changes to the way they actually uh, produced and write the shows. Um, so including the concept of a writer's room Mm -hmm. um, although on a much smaller scale. So in America, the writer's room has multiple writers all sort of pitching in this communal effort to put the script together. Um, DR came up with a three-person model with a head writer and two episode writers. But the concept was the same, that you have this collaborative writing space where you can sort of throw around these ideas. Um, so as one of Borgen's co-writers, Jeppe Jervig Graham, explains... DR took some years to find the Danish way to do it the American way. <laughs> um, and for those of you interested in the logistics of, of how that, that sort of writing works, there's a really good book by Eva Novrat Redville called Writing and Producing Television Drama in Denmark. And she was allowed to actually sit in on the writer's room in Borgen and see how that sort of played out, putting the episodes together. Now, Lauren Collins, writing for The New Yorker, points out that this kind of inspiration from America for DR's revival creates a very peculiar circularity in the case of Borgen. Um, so Borgen's creator, Adam Priest, and his fellow writers were inspired particularly by The West Wing, to which the show is being compared. And now HBO is developing an American form of Borgen. And so Collins asks, if you Americanise Borgen, don't you end up back where you started with mm. the West Wing. Like, how does that process going to play out? It will be really interesting to, to see. Mm. Mm. Um, and I'd argue that part of Borgen's ability to differentiate itself as a program within this kind of political drama is the very Danishness of its political system, which, mm. you know, as someone, a viewer coming completely unfamiliar with that, took quite a while to get my head around exactly what was going on in this system. It has eight major political parties 
and who all depend on each other to form coalition governments, and it's been that way for many decades. And that creates quite a different political dynamic for a drama to tackle, especially in comparison to the American system. Mm -hmm. It's a system that's arguably more dependent on cooperation, but it's also potentially more unstable. Coalitions can fall apart at any given moment. Now, I think those those are very specific conditions for this sort of drama to unfold in, Mm -hmm. and ones that you can't automatically replicate those aspects of the story to America. Um, You can take certain plot lines, but you can't take that sort of political situation. Um, And Morton Hesseldahl, the cultural director of DR, is actually surprised by the show's success because this is one that they didn't expect to travel. So there's some that they've developed specifically with that export market Mm. in mind, but Borgen wasn't one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And he says, we thought Borgen was maybe just too Danish to travel. Um, but it has been sold to 75 different countries, and this suggests that perhaps it's the very Danishness of its political world that is part of that appeal. Mm -hmm. And I'd say this is particularly true of the third and final season, um, in which the out-of-office Nyborg is trying to mount a comeback, and I'll have the clip now, which is the trailer for this third season. Okay, so this third season is very much about how does this political system work? How do all these disparate parties actually form governments? How does that work on a very nitty-gritty day-to-day basis? So it's a very sort of Danish context. On the other hand, you have this more exportable generalist idea that Priest had of creating a less cynical political drama, a show that upholds the idea, as Nyborg says in this clip, that in the 21st century, ethical standards actually mean something which is not specifically a Danish concept. And part of DR's production model, um, it has this emphasis on what it calls double storytelling, which is a policy that, along with the actual plot line, the narrative, there should be a broader ethical and social dimension that's that's brought out through that plot. And in case of Borgen, the pitch was, can you hold on to power and still hold on to yourself? So that was the pitch that got it across the line to, to DR, saying, well how does this fit into our corpus of, of works? So with all this international back and forth with exporting shows, um, I found myself looking at the way that Borgen's been marketed in different countries. Mm-hmm. And what I'm going to do is look at a selection of different DVD covers, mm-hmm. um, and w- which we find quite different taglines in marketing of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so here is an American one. Borgen is Denmark's West Wing, but even better. LAUGHTER um, this is the Danish season one cover where it's simply Borgen, a series of Adam Priest. Okay, that's the tag. You, you, will, you will like this show because you like other work by this fellow. This is the Australian, UK and USA, so the English-speaking world covers. Uh, it's quite different. The tagline here is, Borgen, sacrifice everything for your family except power. Then we have... In France, the season two cover with the tagline, Borgen, a woman in power. And the Dutch season two cover simply reads, Borgen, the government. That's probably my favourite one. (laughs) Uh, Well, in Germany, it was publicised as Borgen, hazardous cliques. It's a rough translation of what this is. I'm not going to try pronouncing the German one. (laughs) Now, what I find interesting about these different ways of pitching the show to different markets is that... These two latter ones that I've got on screen seem purely political in their connotations, 
the French and English language ones have quite a different spin. Think of if you had, I'm going to go back. Um, think of if you had a political drama with a male lead and the tagline was, a man in power. Um, sounds a bit naff, doesn't it? I mean, unfortunately, it seems too banal. Um, sacrifice anything for your family except power. That could be applied equally to either gender, but in reality, it really is. Mm -hmm. And um, Annabelle Crabb wrote a piece um, recently for The Age complaining about the way that female CEOs are always asked, and usually at the first question, how do you balance family life mm. and your work? Mm. But male CEOs never are. And she suggests, I don't think the answer is to stop asking women. The answer is to start asking men. Mm. She says, with men, we're so confident that there's someone else managing it that we don't even linguistically presuppose a clash by calling them working fathers. <laughs> so... Um, just skipping ahead. There we go. So in seasons one and two of Borgen, the impact of a political career on one's personal life is played mm. out through Birgit herself, mm. with her marriage, um, with her role as a mother. But in season three, the same issues instead get played out through Torben, um, who is has a personal and um, professional breakdown and is having an affair difficulties with fatherhood, and also Katrine, who's struggling with the demands of being a single mother um, and being um, a spin doctor at the same time. Now, I have to say that I'm not convinced that Torben's plotline is always handled that well. It's a pretty clunky uh, little narrative line, but at the very least, it asks the question, how do men balance family life and what are the costs if they can't? Um, how can men manage to be working fathers? So it's kind of a step in the right direction, even if the way the exhibition is sort of less than satisfying. Now, Borgen, like the West Wing, sort of tends to favour quite an idealistic vision of politics. I mean, the whole aim of it was to not go down the cynical path, to restore faith in political process. The thing that tempers it potentially is that it doesn't necessarily follow the same line with its soap narrative. Um, it thwarts our expectations and desires perhaps for a fairy tale ending and for relationships that can come together in some sort of finality. So by season two, Birgit's ex-husband ends a relationship primarily we're led to believe because perhaps he still has you know, yearnings for Birgit herself. But at the very beginning of season three, we're told it's two and a half years later and there's nothing. You know, we're just cut off. There's there any, all these suggestions and flirting just goes. Um, there's still chemistry. Um, Mikhail Bikir was cast specifically because of that on-screen chemistry. Um, but we're left kind of hanging and disappointed or something that's set up and then pulled away from us. Similarly, we, we rejoin Katrina and Casper and their relationship isn't going as well as we might think. Um, there's story arcs, but there's no finality. And Priest said he, they wrote it as if it kept continuing. Mm. But it won't because DR has never funded a series beyond three seasons. So that, that's kind of wrapped up. And unless they change their policy, that, that is their, their standing policy. And I think that the question is, you know, does Borgen need those narrative frustrations to not make it too candy? 
you know, if, if your audience is also watching House of Cards in the thick of it and they come to Borgen and everything's sort of wrapped mm. up nice and neatly with a little bow, will it just be too saccharine without those elements? Finally, one thing I wanted to mention is that it's DR's policy to insist that for its own productions, there will be no remakes, no adaptations. And I think that's particularly ironic given what we're talking about here, about <laughs> <laughs> all its exporting into other countries. So, tuck. <laughs> so, last but not least, we have Byron Beish, who's theatre critic for The Herald Sun and a freelance writer. Now, I'm going to say here, Byron gave me his bio, and I'm just going to say, he wrote this himself. Okay, I do not have some vendetta against this. <laughs> and I say that because this is quite a self-deprecating thing. Anyway, you'll see. He was a TV critic for Crikey, but he tells us that this ended swiftly when he accidentally became the figurehead of an industrial action against them. He's been fired by Channel 9, described as snotty-nosed by John Michael Hausen, and called a talentless douche by Anthony Kalia. <laughs> His elbow and shoulder appeared in two episodes of Heartbreak High, <laughs> and Mia Friedman once told him he was weird, but right. <laughs> so tonight he's talking about real humans, <clears throat> and we'll find out if he's weird, but right. Please make him welcome. <laughs> so I'm here to tell you that there is more to Nordic TV than grim, kind of gripping procedurals, I promise. But before we do that, a cautionary tale. Um, if you ask me the neurological effects of binge-watching television have not been sufficiently documented, I watched about 20 hours of Swedish television to prepare for tonight, <laughs> plus, you know, five or six hours of Danish and Norwegian television. And there was a point a couple of days ago where I'd watched six episodes of Real Humans, which I'm about to talk about, and I went upstairs to the kitchen to get a glass of water, and my housemate was in the kitchen, and he said something to me, and all I heard was noise. Like, the language centre of my brain had completely shut down <laughs> to sound, and I just needed subtitles. That was all it was. But it got even worse, because the next morning, my partner was leaving to go to Auckland for a couple of days, and he woke me up at, like, 5.30 to say goodbye to me. And I kind of did that half-awake thing, and I didn't know this until he texted me later, but apparently I spoke to him in quite good conversational Swedish. <laughs> And I don't speak Swedish. He speaks a tiny bit of Swedish. And I, yeah, it's, it's yes. terrifying. But, the human, so the human brain is a terrifying thing. But what if we could replicate it or something close to it? That's one of the many sticky questions that real humans asks. In a landscape where the influence of Nordic TV is everywhere, from the colour grading on The Walking Dead to the icy plotting on Broadchurch, real humans is this rare animal. It's a Swedish series, that, a sci-fi series, that takes its genre cues from American television so what happens when robots become so convincing that it's tough to tell them apart from real people, when they're so human that they can even be our lovers? Um, real Humans takes place in a parallel world to our own. It's set in the present day, in which everyone's lives have been completely transformed by the kind of advent of these robots called the Hubots. They're servants, they're labourers, they're company for lonely people, they're used as prostitutes, uh, and even as carers for the elderly. Um, Real Humans almost raises more questions than it can answer, which is a good thing. Uh, but, you know, it asks, are there any jobs left that can't be done better by a robot? Um, can, they, can the robots develop feelings of their own? Uh, and why do Swedish front doors open outward? <laughs> um, but seriously, the big question is, in the grand tradition of uh, something like Blade Runner or Battlestar Galactica, what does it mean to be human? Um, if we can replicate ourselves in a form that can evolve on its own, how different are we really? 
So out of the box, Hubots aren't entirely human-like. They conform to Asimov's three laws of robotics. If you don't know them, they are one, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Two, a robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or the second laws. The standard programming makes Hubots harmless and submissive. But of course, there are exceptions. Uh, there's a band of rogue Hubots led by a human named Leo. They've had their programming altered uh, to be more or less human. They're different in other ways too, but that puts me in spoiler territory, so I'm not going to tell you about that. Um, but uh, they have desires, they have dreams, and they've had the Asimov restrictions removed. So they're not the only ones uh, who are slightly more human either. There's an underground trade in Hubot reprogramming and they're being reconfigured to be better lovers, better boyfriends, or even better mercenaries, terrifyingly. Real Humans kind of rips up the playbook. It's all about the culture that it was born out of. Sweden is a far more egalitarian society than ours. Men and women are largely equal. There's marriage equality and there has been in various forms since 1995. Even the Church of Sweden performs same-sex marriages. And the Church of Sweden's been ordaining women since 1960. It's a really different world to ours. Um, and it's one where socioeconomic status is an inescapable fact, but it's never really a barrier. And so in a world where humans are all on a fairly level playing field, one without kind of palpable, visible class distinctions, how are you supposed to feel about the humanoid robots? If you can sit down and have a conversation with one, are they really so different? And this is what makes real humans so good and why its American remake, which is currently in pre-production at AMC, is probably going to be quite bad. Um, so the Americans have tried to make shows like this about what it means to be human. And Battlestar Galactic is a really good example. I don't know if anyone's seen it. Uh, but it, uh, that was a show that purported to be about what humanity would do if the humanoids it invented evolved beyond them. But it was really a show about what it means to be American. <laughs> which is not a bad thing, but... Uh, and here, Sweden is kind of incidental, and somehow the Swedish sensibility becomes universal. And the really remarkable thing about uh, this show is that the creators uh, didn't invent any kind of android hive mind. There's no network in the sky. They don't have Wi-Fi. Hubots have to communicate in the same way as humans do. They have the same kind of social restrictions as humans. So if we make copies of ourselves, which are so close to the real thing that you form emotional bonds with them, the question that lingering question is impossible to avoid. What does it even mean to be human? And who's responsible for the actions of a Hubot? Do Hubots have some form of Hubot rights? There's a point where those two women uh, sue a nightclub because it wouldn't let them in with their Hubots, which is pretty funny. Uh, should Hubots be paid for their work? That's their primary function in this society. Um, and that lingering question, what does it mean to be human, is the thing that this show toys with masterfully and the thing that terrifies me about the American remake. Real Humans <laughs> is, is this sobering vision of a future that's not altogether distant. And although it's a future that'll probably make the creepiest bits of the internet even creepier, it's one I'm kind of excited by. <laughs> Now, we're going to have a bit of a roving mic in a moment to open up to questions, but before we do, Sean, do you want to be my able-bodied helper? Uh, we have a bit of a giveaway here. Um, so it's a quiz. <laughs> so, um, Sean, how are we going to... Can you keep an eye on... We'll keep, everyone keep an eye on whose hand goes up first. We might need the light on. We, <laughs> we might the need the light on. See, see yeah. you out there. Okay, so question one. Name the actress who plays Sarah Lund in the Danish version of The Killing. Oh, oh, down here. <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> Terrific. Okay, question two. What other Scandi series has Torben from Borgen appeared in? Okay, yep. <laughs> Terrific. Okay. Where in the United States is the American remake of The Killing Set? Oh, this hand went up first. No. That's the bridge. Here? No. Yeah, it is. It's Seattle. It is. Can you be? Yeah, it is Washington oh, State. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's Vancouver. Okay. Washington State, yeah. All right. Which British sitcom featured a cameo from Sarah Lund in 2011? Yeah? Uh, absolutely fabulous. Ending yes. it was. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> you I think we should have some applause. Yes. Here, okay. okay. And, the, and the very last one. In the American remake of The Bridge, Sonia Kruger's boss is played by Ted Levine. What famous role did Ted Levine play in a previous serial killer thriller? Yeah? Yes! 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 Buffalo well Bill! Well done! Yeah. So, Sean's got the mics. If you would like a question from any of our panellists about any of this or any other Scandi TV, please put your hand up and we'll be happy to have a chat with you. Um, one thing you're looking at those clips, it's quite a contrast between where we started with mm. noir, you know, black, <laughs> and the light, the light in real humans, that, that sort of washed out washed out it's overlit mm. quite yeah. a different yeah, kind of not, aesthetic feel to I, it I kind of peeked clips around spoilers it's not all like that it's kind of 80% it looks yes, like that yeah. but there's there's an underground where the Hubots are traded and there are Hubot sex clubs and yeah. did, that's, that's pretty cool did you mention Stepford Wives? No, I didn't, um, but it's an interesting comparison. There's also an American series which has now been axed, thankfully, called Almost Human, which is yeah. Yeah. legit a straight-up rip-off of this show. It's really bad. <laughs> okay. um, but The Stepford Wives is an interesting comparison because yes. that kind of has this tragic ending where it all goes horribly wrong. And but my, my acronym for noir is negative outcome is requisite. Right? <laughs> it all goes to hell. You know, yeah. There is no happy ending. And, and indeed, I, I think... What's interesting about The Killing, because you were talking about The Killing in relation to noir, um, the first season of The Killing, and, and without making it a spoiler, it, it is all in the family, mm. as it were, mm -hmm. right? But the, I've, been, I've been wrestling with this idea, because uh, I've just done this book on the TV crime series, and, and you know, there are people who say that the crime series is kind of a conservative genre because they always solve the crime and resolve and people go to prison, etc. But in a sense, it isn't. Because the ongoingness of the crime series means that you can solve the crime, but you never solve the problem. Mm. So there is an inherent noirness in the ongoingness of the, of the problem. And I think the difference mm. between the killing is that, that what was interesting about it was that the, the anxiety around the family unit mm. and, and the, the idea that crime is within the family, which I think is also a very major anxiety of, of contemporary society, that it's, it's not out there, it's in here. Mm, yeah. yeah, and that comes up even in real humans, where you've got the reconfigure. Well, what does a family mean if you've got a Hubot mm. in the home with you, and do they count as a family? And how does that change the family dynamics? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that like that idea of the crime versus the problem is, I think, the reason why Nordic TV is so appealing. 
to kind of Australia and the UK because we're used to these American shows where like America is is a culture that is desensitized to crime you know like there's I mean not completely desensitized to crime and maybe today is not the right day to say that but no I don't think so but it's but it's a culture where like Law and Order SVU and you may disagree with this but it's a show that presents rape as entertainment you know it's a show where there's a violent crime and then it's solved at the end. No, whereas, I don't agree with you. Okay, but, yeah. but the, whereas this Nordic TV, mm. there's the crime at the beginning, mm. and then it's about the aftermath. Yeah. And you take an entire season rather than this kind of neat little yeah. 42 See, that minute. same argument was made about Dragnet and, and the early TV crime series, which was that, that because they solved the crime and, 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 the, and, the, and the perpetrator was brought to justice, that it was solved. I actually think that, that, that the reason that... Um, Law and Order SUV is the ongoing one, is the on- ongoing anxiety about sexual crime. And, and th- there is now this extra narrative, which is Marita Hag- Haggerty, the, the woman who plays the central character, has become a massive crusader, crusader around sexual violence. So that there, there is the, the you know, extra textual narrative, which builds into the experience of watching the show, as all these things do, you know, from the mm. DVD cover to what's being written about it. Um, I think that particular show, this, the very fact that it's ongoing reveals the fact that it, it's never going to be solved. It just keeps on going. But I don't think, I don't think, there's, I, I don't think it's a particularly critical viewership. I don't think that show gets the ratings it does because people are watching it for the crusade element, for the, the kind of... You see, I never condescend to the audience. I never imagine that the audience is not as smart as I am. Right? I never do that. But that's the difference between, I think, American TV and Nordic TV, is Nordic TV assumes the audience is incredibly intelligent and American television is full of exposition for the people who aren't paying attention or aren't capable of paying attention. But not all American TV. <laughs> no, not all. But not all American TV. And American t- there, is, there has always been very intelligent network TV. The Rockford Files, for example, is a very clever series that inverted the genre in lots and lots and lots of ways. And I could go through and find you examples of clever TV. So, you know, it's not all the same by any means. Now, I'm going to throw it out to the audience. Ah, question down the front. Do you want to just wait for the mic? Because, yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Broadchurch, I found there were some similarities. And so is that a spin-off from the Nordic television program? I think it's largely influenced by it, but it's a complete... Broadchurch was a completely original property. Um, Who has seen Broadchurch? So much the audience... Um, the American remake of Broadchurch, which is called... Grace Church. Grace Point. Grace Point. Um, is really odd. I don't know if anyone else, anyone has seen that, but it kind of misses the point of the British series. It kind of replicates its tone, but doesn't replicate its soul. Um, yeah. It's kind of similar to the, the American remake of The Bridge in yeah. that sense. That yeah. it doesn't, there seems to be this lack of understanding that it's, it's not about the crime. It's about what the crime does to the community and yeah. not knowing who perpetrated mm. the crime does mm. to the community. But then, again, that comes back to the idea that when you've got writers doing a remake and wanting to own it, mm. they, they're going to want to slightly shift mm. it. Mm. Mm. I think what's interesting about the, the, the Grace Point remake is that they took David Tennant, mm. that they bet on <laughs> taking him across 
uh, to, to play it with an American accent, which mm. I haven't seen, and you've seen it. How does yeah, he come across? He's fine. I mean, he he's copped a lot of flack for the accent, though. They say that he sort of drifts he in wavers. and out. He's yeah. not as good in Grace Point as he was in Broadchurch, mm. but nobody's going to be if they're doing something again mm. in that mm. kind of television format. It's not theatre. You don't get to go on a different journey. You get to do, mm. you know, 40 seconds, and then you do it from another angle, and it's just, mm. yeah, it's hard to replicate a performance like that. I don't know why he said yes to it. <laughs> Money. <laughs> Do we have some more questions from the audience? Hi. I'm not actually sure that you're going to choose to answer my question because you're all very shy and, and showing some discomfort around spoilers. But um, a couple of you have mentioned um, about the inversion of the noir format and, and sort of you know, taking the standard and reversing it. In that context, um, the ending of the season, last season of The Killing and Sarah Lund's actions seem to be completely out of character, but they seem to find some meaning in the context of that, taking what, you know, the standard sort of packaging up with the neat bow and then just ripping that bow off and throwing it away, you know, like it's a complete... So I just wanted to know if you had any comments about that, about the way that they chose to end that season. I think that's your question. Uh, I don't really um, have much to say. I mean, I think it's in keeping with their attempt to um, not follow the, the sort of the narrative that we might expect or in, in trying to sort of reinvent it somewhat so that it's not just another, you know, serial procedural that you, you know what to expect um, would be kind of my response. Mm. Um, I don't know if anyone has other... No, I also wonder if it also ties into the fact that Dia has this policy of three seasons and then you're done. Yeah. You know, so that that was always going to make the last season I something think the a different went piece. Longer than that, didn't really? It? Yeah, yeah, but that's its standing policy. So yeah. you know, that's if you're if you're making a show, then that's what you can expect. So it would have to be something very rare and out of the box for them. So they will probably be expecting, okay, this is where we're going to leave off. So that has to change the way that they approach or it. For, for the better other, or worse. Or the other strategy, which was that they wanted to leave it all open so that the demand would be there mm. for the next season. Well, and you know, Morgan does that, that, that too. That has a sort of, like the priest said, he deliberately read it as if there was another season, you know, just yeah. in case. <laughs> because mm. you, you never know. Um, it may be the policy, but you just never know when someone will turn around and say, well, actually... We're going to keep it going, you know. So I guess they've got to, They've always got to have that tension, then, don't you? Between, well, how do we give it a nice story arc that seems to make sense in and of itself, yeah. but leave it open enough that mm. if we were greenlit for another season, we've got somewhere to go. And that's sort of quite a difficult space to be in, I think, from a writing point of view. Mm. Well, we've watched that develop in television, um, you know. And I was thinking about other classic American series like Hill Street Blues, which, which was one of the very first series, um, crime series, to actually experiment with that idea that you would have an A and B episodic narrative and you would have the ongoing um, melodramatic mm -hmm. melos and drama um, mm -hmm. going on around the, um, the station head and his girlfriend and the people in the station so that you would have that um, seasonal arc mm -hmm. as well as the, you know, so before Buffy came along, when everybody got really excited about it, or The Sopranos, that long-form crime series was starting to happen in that particular way. Um, and that idea that you leave a season hanging with everybody waiting <laughs> for the next moment is, is, I think, 
something that we've seen from the 90s onwards, which where, where they're not closing it down, mm. they're leaving it open with the possibility. And, and whether you want narrative closure or whether you're prepared to believe that that world is continuing until they plug back into it um, is, is one of the interesting things about watching television, I think. Yeah, that technique is sort of an interesting technique because you wonder how much of it is about inspiring water cooler conversation and mm. how successful or necessary that is now that we're in the post-broadcast era when you don't have to wait next week to find out what happens no. or mm -hmm. next six months to find out what no. happens. Uh, and the water co cooler conversation the next day at work is, you know, it might not exist because no one else has seen the killing, right? Like it was <laughs> only on it late on SBS. Yes, but I just had the water cooler moments with Happy Valley, you know, the Happy Valley that's just been mm. on on a Friday night, which I now, of course, have found out, you know, that you, it was on British television and I could have seen it all at once, but I didn't. Mm. And I, just for, just for six weeks there, I was so excited on Friday nights. <laughs> you know, that idea of, of oh, good, it's bottle mm. of champagne and Happy Valley. You know, it's the most depressing <laughs> thing. In all senses of the word, with your champagne. On, <laughs> on a Friday night. And it, it reminded me of the pleasures of, watch, of that appointment television, mm. which Borgen, I, I watched in, in four days, all three seasons, with <laughs> flu. And at the end of it, like you, I had that experience, I became Birgitta Nyborg. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I kind of went into work the next day thinking, I'm a woman with power. You know, <laughs> how will I spend, you know, how will I delegate my power? It was very bizarre. And it lasted, the, the hangover lasted at least a fortnight yeah. before Birgitta wore off. You know, it was very scary. I even started wearing suits again. You know, really scary. But I think the thing is then that, that those little, you know, the, the cliffhangers, the, the seasons that, that, that don't yeah. uh, wrap everything up, um, they still have a function when you're binge viewing on DVD or streaming or what have you. It's to keep you watching, yeah. you know, in, in the one session, not next week. No, you know. they right. can also be really fatiguing when you're binge watching a show. Yes, yes. So just kind of that emotional up and down. Yes. Like I, I have, and I love The Good Wife, which is the best thing on network TV. If you're not watching it, you should be. <laughs> but I watch it every week and I kind of hungrily wait for it to appear online and then I download it legally. <laughs> <laughs> But it's, it is such an incredible thing to be able to have that kind of, mm. to look forward to something and to know when it's coming and mm. to just be hungry for mm. storytelling. Mm. Well, that's the other thing is when you binge um, watch something that you've really loved, it, it is enjoyable, but there's also a certain, thank God that's over and I can actually go out into the well, world again. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, you know, as a technique, it can be quite frustrating because if you don't have time to sit and watch six hours of Borgen, no. um, you know... Oh, don't leave me there, you know. Yeah. I've actually got to go and, you know, mark essays now. Like, I can't, I can't <laughs> be watching Borgen while I'm doing that. There are subtitles. Um, so, you know, I, I think it can be a technique that gets overplayed. Mm -hmm. And I, I would question, you know, if it's not done well, what's its purpose now that, yeah. But, you know, th th this experience of, of the binge-watching experience is what I used to do as a child with a book. You yeah. know, it's the immersive mm -hmm. experience where you, you, you lose yourself in something and you actually remove yourself from everyday life mm. for whatever reason and you are lost in that world. You enter that fictional universe and you stay there, you know. And that's a very different experience from that kind of weekly appointment thing mm. where you come out of it and you go back in and you go out. So I think, I think we're, we're discovering that immersive experience and, and a film's too short, you know. Mm. <laughs> you, you really want yeah. a long-form drama series. You know, there are moments where, where only a long-form drama television series will do. And it's the same as being, I really want to, you know, lose myself in that book for however mm. long it's going to take. And it's time out. 
Mm. It's actually the relief to enter a fictional world where people have all got problems that are different from yours. <laughs> Does it sound well, like therapy? Uh, yeah, well, the, same, well, the other thing is, is when they've got problems that are clearly worse than yours and you think, oh, yes! well, it's not that oh, bad. It's not that But shall we open it back out? Are there any more questions from our audience? Down the front here, I suppose. And then there was one up the back. Thanks for all your discussions. I hope this doesn't sound negative, but I've felt sometimes that in the discussion that's occurred here, we've lost sight of some of the very specific cultural aspects of the countries these films are coming from. And I'm not expecting you to talk a lot about that. I just thought, for instance, your comments about music. To me, one of the things I love about the best German cinema is that, quite apart from cinema, in the German cultural tradition, mm. contemporary music competition is treated very seriously mm -hmm. and really informs you know, mm. a lot of the best German cinema. And for me, like, music can be an actor itself in the mm -hmm. film. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm not meaning to criticise you, but I, I wonder if you were to look more carefully at the backgrounds of where this Nordic cinema were coming from, yeah. just, you might see more things. I, I mean, I just, to reflect on your comment about the cultural differences in, um, the, uh, in the bridge, I struggled constantly with how is this working, in which language? I, I was not sure, and, and I never resolved it, and I loved the fact that I could never resolve exactly where it was culturally. I mean, I, mean, I could tell which country they were in, probably, but I often wasn't sure exactly which language was being talked, no, and, right. and I, I really loved that. And, and I th yeah, there we are. It's yeah. just a reflection. Hi. Um, first of all, full disclosure, I haven't seen Borgen, but my question is about it. So, <laughs> um, As you were talking about it and kind of showing the DVD covers and yeah. that focus on the, on the woman in power idea, I was thinking about um, Madam Secretary. I don't know if yeah. anyone sort of mm, had yeah. seen that. Um, and how if it was going to be remade in America, how, does, how is that going to translate with the nuances of Danish the Danish political mm. system, first of all, and having a, a female prime minister? Because American television and American audiences seem to have a real issue with having a woman in that kind of role. That's mm. why the Madam Secretary is a secretary of state, except for, uh, for, from, from my knowledge anyway. Um, Commander-in-Chief didn't seem to do so well when it was a, a female mm. president, I believe. That yeah, was, with that's right. Davis. Yeah. yeah, so that um, didn't last very long. Yeah, um, in terms of, I suppose, perhaps a commercial or mainstream sort of, of television remake in America, I'm, I'm just wondering how that how that would sort of translate over. If yeah. it It'll be, be called successful. Hillary. <laughs> 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 you're right, it's a, it's a different cultural context because you, 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 um, your comment about, you know, you, we've got to take the specifics of where these programs are coming from. Um, Borgen is very much about the nitty-gritty of a, a very particular political mm. system that can't translate across remakes. Uh, I think that's what makes the show. Um, and there's a certain curiosity factor for an outside audience which would play differently than for, for um, its own audiences. Um, how that's going to translate over to America? I mean, Denmark has 70% of its women in the workforce at any given time. Mm. Um, the majority of its children are in childcare. Um, it's quite a different social um, makeup. Um, America is quite different on those political and social aspects. So I think it will actually be quite difficult for them to do um, and to do well. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I really enjoy about Borgen is the way that 
it doesn't, you know, you're sort of saying crime drama doesn't sort of resolve the crime and therefore repeats the need to make the, the kind of drama about it. Um, I don't think Borgen kind of successfully resolves the, the gender politics, mm. but I do think that they play them out in very intelligent and interesting ways. Mm. In a way that I don't get that sort of satisfaction from watching other programs where gender politics play out mm. in... It, you see the frustration of the writers who are coming from a culture who perhaps don't have um, a great uh, uh, set of ideas about gender, whereas, you know, perhaps um, if the writers were sort of more attuned to the to expressing those problems in a more sophisticated way, it might work, perhaps, in mm -hmm. America. I mean, certainly the, they're very different cultures around, that have different ideas about gender, but, uh, yeah, I think if they were able to be perhaps more attuned to those ideas as opposed to articulating the symptom of those ideas, mm. which I felt like Commander-in-Chief was really about what will happen if, all, you know, the Prime Minister or the, the President gets her period, you know, like a really blunt <laughs> thought about what it means for a woman to be in power. And, and the... I felt like Borgen did it in a much more intelligent way and a, a much more sort of feeling way, um, even though it didn't fix the issue or resolve it or kind of find a solution to that, mm. to that problem, really. Um, so it would be really interesting to see how the, the, America, the new American remake mm. deals think, with that. I think um, Commander-in-Chief, like I, I remember loving it at the time. I was quite young. Um, <laughs> But then I watched The West Wing and I learned. Um, but Commander-in-Chief was about party politics and whenever the president wasn't in the room, it was this kind of dry show about the machinations of government. And whenever she was in the room, it was, oh, is the president going to be on her rags? Um, and that's what killed it. But I think, like, not to evangelise about The Good Wife, but it is mm. essentially Borgen. It's about mm. a woman in politics. The lead character in the current season is running for the Office of State's Attorney in Chicago. Her husband is the governor. And it's about the moral grey areas that exist in public life and what power does to a person. Mm -hmm. And it's really cleverly disguised as a procedural, which is why probably the, those of you who haven't watched it might have dismissed it. Mm -hmm. But it's not a procedural. It is operating in that exact same space that Borgen does about a woman and what happens when a woman plays a man's game. Mm -hmm. oh, I guess the point then is, is, is that how does then a new show find a niche yeah. for itself yeah, yeah. if that's already been kind of taken? Yeah, because that's one of the things I think about the killing in America. It was just too close to Twin Peaks. Mm. You know, it was set in the same region of uh, that yeah. kind of north, uh, you know, rainy... Well, it's Vancouver. They, they shoot most of their television in Vancouver. There's a whole, you know, argument uh, about why they do it there because it's cheap. Mm. It's cheaper than shooting in the US. The US. Yeah, um, but just repeating that plot, you know, the dead girl and the investigation around mm. it. In a very, you know, Twin Peaks was arguably also not about the dead girl so much as this small town. I think even um, David Lynch has spoken about that. Well, it brings us back to that notion of atmosphere and setting mm -hmm. and, and mm. the, the why we're watching the Danish and Scandinavian series is mm. because they're, they're representing familiar themes and ideas and genres but within a completely different cultural setting where we're getting to recognise both the similarity and the distance Mm. whilst, you know, enjoying that difference, that difference of language, that difference of culture and mm. chairs and <laughs> lighting and stuff. You know, so it, 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 it's that, that 
idea that you've got, and we haven't mentioned cultural tourism, but of course these series do inspire a huge amount of cultural tourism. Yeah, yeah. And there's a, a question over there. Hi, um, I haven't seen uh, the killing, the American killing, but my sister-in-law tells me that the end of season one didn't reveal the killer of the US Correct. killing, yeah. which must have been enormously frustrating and it meant that it has to have had to have a, a second season. Yeah, um, so the Danish version, the first season ran over 20 episodes, and in America they only had a 13-episode season. So they didn't reveal who the killer was, and it only came out in the second season. And there were there was an absolute was furor, wasn't it? Uh, was it 10? It I was think? 10. So what they did was they split, and I think the, the Danish mm. one initially did it that way too. There was, it was 10 and 10. So there was a hiatus in the middle, and then and it wasn't actually the oh, second. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But there was an internet uh, uh, meltdown over the fact that they didn't reveal who the killer was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people were absolutely scathing towards this yeah. decision. Um, I, I found the pace of the American version <coughs> so different. You know, like we found they were copying it in so many different ways, but then changed it in ways that uh, didn't feel necessary. Or, but I think it was partly to do with the the plotting of the crime across multiple seasons rather than one, yeah. Pacing is an interesting issue because um, I know that Borgen, because Borgen was inspired by the West Wing, originally they'd tried to do that very fast-paced pattern that they have in West Wing and oh, the okay. walk and talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, they found that um, you can't do that in Danish. <laughs> or at least it doesn't fly as well, um, both for the actors and the feel and the type of audience that they assume well, they had. So they tried the, out and, that, and they abandoned it and said, well, that just doesn't translate that particular pacing. And also for the overseas audiences, because uh, maybe everyone in the room doesn't know, but Swedish, Danish and Norwegian are kind of mutually intelligible languages. Mm. And so they don't subtitle their television when they air in those markets. They're all kind of, they're close enough that unless you speak a kind of distant dialect, um, you can understand. Mm. So that might have been, yeah. 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 Question? Uh, taking your point about Borgen and, and being specifically Danish, but do you think it also arrived in Australia at a time when our politics was drifting slightly towards that in the way that the parliament was constructed at the time? Mm. That it wasn't... Prior to, prior to that, we were in the very much a two-party, no-hung mm. parliament, but it arrived at the same time that we had that issue and it made it more slight, you know, acceptable? Yeah, I definitely think that would help the, you know, intelligibility of it. I still think there's a struggle to work out the exact... Like, I wanted a, some sort of whiteboard flowchart about the exact Danish sort yeah. of system, but, yeah, I think that's right in terms of finding an audience who is receptive to, well, how does that actually work in practice? I think you're right, yeah. And there was a question over here. Uh, yeah, um, I was really interested in how you were talking about, like, implicit in a lot of this is, like, remakes as failures, like mm. this sort of transcultural stuff when something about the culture, the cultural context in which the show is developed doesn't quite translate into the other, uh, into the remake mm. in, the, in the different sort of cultural context. And I've got two examples of this. One is the very infam infamous sort of worst uh, British to US remake in, widely regarded anyway, is the pilot for the American version of Red Dwarf. Has anyone seen that? No. It's the worst thing you'll ever see. But, um, but the reason... And there's another example that I, I want to talk about, which is uh, the Turkish version of The Nanny, which is 
which I think is... Both of these shows are really interesting because in the case of Red Dwarf, uh, I think like the, the pilot pretty much sticks to the same sort of storyline as uh, the original. But there's a textural element that's missing and that's the element of class, which is very important to, yeah, yeah. to uh, Brit- Britain and not so much in America. That dynamic between Lister and Rimmer is all about class mm. and it's just completely elided in the American version. Mm. So it's really funny how it has the same story but it doesn't have that mm. element to it and so it doesn't work. And, it's wor- and that little sort of textual detail kind of gives it this um, status as the worst American remake <laughs> of, a, of a UK uh, show. And the, the, uh, the other uh, show I mentioned is the Turkish version of The Nanny, which I think is really interesting because um, like, I know The Nanny so well. I grew up on it. I've seen multiple episodes. I caught one episode late on um, SBS one night and it was so funny watching them negotiate, um, like copying the storyline but missing the fundamental Jewishness of, of Fran Drescher, <laughs> like, because, for obvious reasons, mm. um, w- which was really funny as well. Like, mm. the stories were the same, but there's that textual that's uh, right. element that's missing that just, it's not, it's not as good, you know? Like, it's, it's, and it's comedy really, really reveals that cultural specificity, because unless you know the culture, you don't get the joke, yeah. right? Exactly. And it, 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 it is very, very specific, and I get exactly what you're talking about. It was like the, the remake of, of Kath and Kim, where in the original, of course, you've got two women playing mother and daughter, two years separating them, and they deliberately set out to uglify themselves. Whereas in the American versions, you've got two very attractive actors mm. who are then trying to pretend that they're not good-looking. And the ironic gap between the perception of the character and how we see them was completely lost. And it's, it's those kinds of, of you know, culturally specific nuanced things that do disappear, um, which, you know, in, in the crime series, as I said, you can take the thematic, you can take the crime, but all that cultural specificity, specificity around it is, is what makes the original so intriguing um, for you, whether it's you understand it or whether you don't get it. Um, and when you remake it, it's either got to be another set of things that confuse you and, and, and intrigue you. And of course, for anybody coming to the bridge, after having watched the original bridge and the, and the tunnel, it's like, I know this story so well. <laughs> you know, for goodness sake, you know, I've heard the, the three bears, you know, so many times, just make it different. But see, it's probably not pitched to that audience, in no. a way. It's pitched for an audience who, who hasn't seen them. He doesn't want to read subtitles. He doesn't yeah. want to read, watch this foreign stuff. What's no. this? He wants to translate it to their own culture. Yeah. Time, Sean. I think we're just about done. Yeah, yeah, that feeling. Well, so we're out of time. Thank you so much for all joining the conversation with us, and thank you for all my fellow panelists. Too. Thank you. Thank you, the audience. Um, yes, thank you all for coming out. As I said earlier, tonight was our last session. Talking TV is Acme's ongoing series of talks looking at television, and we'll be back in February next year looking at Hannibal. Uh, the t- two seasons of Hannibal. So if you haven't had enough noir, come back in February for that. <laughs> um, but for now, yeah, just one last time, thank the speakers for tonight. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.